You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. People listening are not going to have read this yet because it is only being released today and we are doing a very special bonus episode launching, celebrating Holly Wainwright's new book and Outlouders are in for a real treat. So while Holly has been hosting this Chart Topic podcast, she's been doing a few other things. She's been raising children, managing a team, blah, blah, blah. It's not what we're here to discuss. Not particularly interesting. What is interesting is Holly wrote a book. We are gathered here today to talk about the couple upstairs. I'm going to read you the first chapter. Prologue. January. Mel. Mel didn't believe in ghosts, but there was one living upstairs. Tonight she heard his bare feet stepping across her ceiling, heard his distinctive ghost voice falling through his open window into hers, heard him ghost singing, heard him having ghost sex. In the evenings, while she was likely sitting on her couch, a squirming child between her knees, a knit comb in her hand, an overwrought talent show blaring on the television, she could sense Ghost Man upstairs. He was strumming the guitar. He was playing chess with his girlfriend. They were talking, always. When Mel was in her kitchen, making Eddie's bland brown pasta sauce, the ghost was upstairs frying aromatic chilies and garlic, flicking off bottle tops, pulling corks, clinking glasses. On summer nights like tonight, the windows were always open. It made the barriers between the six different households in Mel's sturdy Art Deco block particularly porous. They were all floating in and out of each other's orbits. Are they dancing again, Mum? asked Ava, lying in Mel's big bed, sheets kicked away, sweating in the heat, both of them tormented by the infuriating whine of a lazy mozzie and the rhythmic gasps drifting down from the upstairs window. Go back to your own bed, darling, Mel whispered to her girl. I won't be able to sleep there either, moaned Ava. It's hot and noisy in there with Eddie too. I'll turn the fan up. Mel swung her legs out of bed. Come on. Ava looked like she was heading for the door, but then abruptly turned and fell face first onto Mel's bed, a dead weight. Mel's exhaustion irritation surged. Ava, bed, or you won't be seeing a screen tomorrow. It was the kind of negotiation Mel knew the ghost wasn't having. The ghost and Laurie, the young woman who shared his home, didn't have to do anything they didn't want to do. Fan on, fan off. Sleep, don't sleep. Work, don't work. Stay home, go out. They didn't even seem to think the ever-shifting rules that told everyone else where to stand and who to touch had anything to do with them. They certainly weren't having their nights co-opted by a sensitive tween whose primary motivation was wheedling permission for more YouTube time. Mel knew this because the woman upstairs had earlier been downstairs in Mel's apartment. Laurie had become her regular babysitter this summer, as Mel had navigated school holidays and work and single parenthood all in one big fresh mess. That morning, Laurie had walked into a low-level war sparked by denied requests for ice cream. You know a wonderful thing about being a grown-up, she'd said to Ava and Eddie, squatting to their level in her terry-toweling playsuit and her bare tanned feet. It was exactly what Mel might have worn when she was her children's age, rather than the mini adult ensembles Ava and Eddie wore, skinny jeans and camo shorts and tiny t-shirts bearing 90s band logos. When you're a grown-up, you can eat ice cream whenever you want, Laurie said, as much as you want, for as long as you want. 
Can you? Mel thought but didn't say. That's not the information I've been given. Being an adult is so boring, so dull, Laurie went on. There have to be perks. Your lives are still brilliant and interesting enough not to need sweetening with chocolate ice cream. Eddie and Ava were too old to fall for such rubbish, but there was something about Laurie that made their eyes and smiles widen. Laurie always spoke to the kids like this, as if she was dropping them exciting little secrets and revelations. To the children, she was lightness and sparkle, a regular Mary Poppins, if Mary Poppins was a 21-year-old backpacker from Southern England, which, let's face it, was a much more likely scenario these days. Laurie had straightened up, pushed her heavy fringe out of her face and looked at Mel. So where are you off to, Mum? Mel tried not to flinch. Despite their talks over hot and cold drinks, despite the porous walls, despite everything Laurie had shared with Mel about the ghost, Mel was still a mum before anything else. Work, she said. I'm going into the office to finish something. Kids, mum's going into the office. Laurie pulled at handfuls of her hair theatrically. There are so many more exciting places to go, right? Mel's children shrugged. They didn't much care where mum went if she wasn't with them. Even this past year when their worlds had changed beyond recognition between their dad moving out and the virus moving in, they were mostly focused on their immediate needs. Mel suspected that when she set foot outside the house, she ceased to exist for them. But Mel had pushed the ball of irritation back down into her chest and picked up her laptop bag. Feed them whatever you can find in the fridge. We're low on supplies, she'd said. At the front door, Mel had stopped and turned quickly. Oh, and don't take them upstairs, okay? Laurie had looked up from the kids who were already pulling down the hallway towards the lounge room and then Nintendo. Her eyes met Mel's for a moment and Mel thought she looked irritated, like this request was petty. Sure, said Laurie with an almost imperceptible nod. Then she followed the kids, singing out to them as if they were all toddlers. Wait for me! Now, 14 hours later, Mel was in her bed and the babysitter's breathless gasps were keeping her awake in the sticky night. For a moment, Mel imagined herself on that tousled futon upstairs. She saw herself under the ghost's blunt fingers, felt the weight of his body, his hot breath on her neck. She knew how it would feel, how consuming it would be. Sleep, she told herself. No need to wake any ghosts tonight. It was the last night Laurie's sighs would keep her from sleeping. The next morning, with its usual rushed routine of packing lunches, gulping coffee and scanning work calls, would mark the end of this strange summer tangle her household had found itself in with the stranded young people upstairs. Laurie wouldn't be babysitting anymore, wouldn't be popping in to share a cup of Mel's Yorkshire tea, a salve for homesickness and ghost trouble, wouldn't be unsettling Mel with that casual familiarity she always fell into. Because by tomorrow, the ghost would be saying that Laurie had gone, vanished. Her backpack pushed into the Ikea wardrobe, her clothes draped over chairs salvaged from roadsides, her phone lying on the scuffed floorboards beside the bed, under the fairy light she'd strung up to sprinkle a little magic. Five days from now, Mel would have done things she didn't ordinarily do, things she had only ever seen on screens. She would have been interviewed by a policewoman who seemed no older than Laurie herself. She'd have printed out pictures of her babysitter from Laurie's crowded social media accounts and pasted them to lampposts, pinned posters on cafe notice boards next to urgings to socially distance and wash your hands, and lied. Mel would have lied quite a lot. Yay! <laughs> I'm going to throw to Holly in a second to tell you what it's about because I always find it weird when... Mm the people interviewing try and awkwardly provide a synopsis that isn't as good as the person who wrote it. But I thought what we'd do first is get the compliments out of the way. Yeah. Because, look, we talk a lot. We're good friends. 
None of us particularly good with it. Oh, Mia, you don't mind a compliment. No, but Holly, no, she's, she's even uncomfortable, really, with compliments. No, I we, don't like compliments from you two. We don't give each other a lot of compliments to each other's faces. Excuse me, I do. Oh, I'm yeah. constantly complimenting <laughs> you oh, both. Yeah. yeah, we don't really give them back. Because that's how I was brought up. My mother gave yes. me a lot of compliments. So that's your love kind language. of a thing. It's my love language. Yes. But you two are like so icky. So uncomfortable. We're very uncomfortable. Yeah. So I thought that what we'd do first is just sing Holly's praises. So <laughs> firstly, this isn't a compliment, it's a fact. Holly Wainwright is a best-selling author of what is now four books. They have been sold internationally and endorsed by the likes of Sally Hepworth, Francis Whiting, The Daily Telegraph and Jacqueline Bublitz. This book, The Couple Upstairs, is Holly's best so far. It's pacey and it's suspenseful and completely different to anything you've ever read. It explores coercive control better than any book I've come across and examines the link between passion and infatuation and completely losing oneself to the point of it being Mm. toxic and wrong and potentially dangerous. The characters are complicated and they're flawed and there is no way in hell you're going to guess the ending. And it would make a brilliant movie. I'll put that on the table. Anything you want to add, Mia, about The Couple Upstairs? I agree with all of that. This was a really interesting book because Holly told us nothing about it. Nothing. She's obviously got her process with her other three books, which we've lived through. Um, <laughs> you do have to live through my process more than we most. We do. But, no, you always keep your process quite separate and I know you've got readers who aren't asked, but I don't even think you did that this time. In other books I've known either the title yep. or we've known the basic premise. This time you were very odd about this <laughs> mm-hmm. book. We'll get to maybe why a little bit later, but I came to it completely cold. I knew a little bit about the title because, oddly, we'd workshop the title even though I didn't yeah, really know I what did. it was about <laughs> um, at one stage. And the title's brilliant, The Couple Upstairs, and then on the cover it says Young, Perfect, Dangerous. But it is such a step up from you, and that's hard to say because I loved all your other books and I think every book you've done has been dramatically better than the last because you're getting very visibly better at this. And it's been an amazing thing to watch because I absolutely loved your first book. The Mummy Bloggers thought it was amazing and also was relieved because, like, what if she couldn't have written a book? She was the first of Among Us to really write a fiction book. So I was like, what if it's not good, awkward? But the first one was amazing and everyone's been amazing since. But this one is at a whole other level. This takes you to that next level, people who love Leanne Moriarty and Sally Hepworth and this is serious now. Yeah, this is a world-class novel that is the plottiness, the suspense. There's a thriller ele- element to it. Which yeah, we, mystery. We, yes, absolute mystery and I just absolutely adored it. I read it while Holly was away. Yeah. Holly wants to die. Um, she does. She's gone so red yeah. out loud. Holly, can you tell readers what, what it's, it's about? about? Oh, my gosh. Thank you both very much for saying such nice things. I do want to die. It's so uncomfortable. But (laughs) thank you, though. Because you're from Manchester. (laughs) I was very gripped with insecurity about this book, as I did talk about a couple of times on Out Loud, and I think that is because it is very different to things I've done before and also because, let's face it, the time we were writing it in was weird. It was Mm. the last two years, really, mostly over the last year, but has been a weird time. I think everybody's across that, right? Pandemic all the things. So it was a weird time and I think it messed with my head a lot. But what I really wanted to do in this book, and it makes me so happy when I hear people tell me what they took from it, because that's the way you know if you got it right, is I wanted it to be about relationships and sort of longing and lust and all those things, but also that line 
between obsession and infatuation and the excitement about that and when it steps into a dangerous zone. So it's about a woman, newly single mum, who's living in a unit in Sydney's eastern suburbs. It is very firmly set where I used to live. Yep. Like that was the apartment block that I had in my head the whole time, sort of a small Art Deco apartment block near the beach. And she becomes obsessed with the couple upstairs and primarily the man who moves in upstairs who reminds her very intensely of her first love. It makes her look at that relationship and reflect on it and that sort of unfolds. And then a young woman moves in and joins him and she becomes Mel's babysitter and then things go very wrong. I have a question that I thought the whole way through reading this, and we made a rule that we couldn't ask you any questions until we're on the mic, right? Mm -hmm. This was the big question. Is the idea of a toxic sort of relationship based on lived experience? Because there were specificities in that and comments that he made that were so real that I thought that can't be manufactured. Is that coming from a real experience you had as a young person? Yes. And I know this might be a bit of a frustrating answer that writers give, but it's not the story of a particular relationship, Mm -hmm. but it is an amalgamation for me of a couple of different relationships. I have definitely been Laurie, who's the young person who is traveling and trying to figure out who she is and all these things, completely obsessed and consumed by a, a relationship that is very passionate with somebody who probably isn't the best for you. And I have also been in sort of borderline abusive relationships. It's not that it played out exactly like this, but I really wanted to draw from those experiences because I know that they're so universal really for women and also play with the complexity of it that Mel is looking back at her relationship that was like that and not all her feelings about it are negative. You know, some of them have really informed the way that she looks at love and sex and life in a good way. She thinks fondly of him in lots of ways and all of those things. But ultimately, it was the relationship that she knew she had to get away from. Those are definitely experiences I've had, but it isn't like one linear story that Mm. like, yes, I dated that guy and this is what happened. It's so funny that we were talking about the word toxic last week and how everything's toxic. Relationships can be really toxic. I can really identify with that idea that it can just be two people at a period of time in their life. And what else I loved about this was not just the exploration of when does a relationship become toxic and what does that mean, but also just the shifting power balance in a relationship, how you can start with one person having more power and then it can shift. Were you afraid to explore that because there is a narrative that is very true in a lot of cases, which is perpetrator victim, right? You looked at a bit of grey area here in terms of how being an insecure young person, I related with this a lot in my 20s, I haven't been able to put words around it, I think in a way that your book could, that you bring things to relationships that make you particularly vulnerable. It doesn't mean that the person who manipulates you ought to do that. Were you afraid to explore that? It's really nuanced. Yes. Jesse and I have talked about this a little bit, but one of the things you have to do if you're going to write boldly, without wanting to sound like a dickhead, is you have to shut off the sort of Twitter voice. If you write anything, and this is true of like the work we do also writing for Mamma Mia, if you write everything with a perception of the criticism it's going to receive or the people it might upset, you paralyse yourself and you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't like 
obviously be mindful about not wanting to trample all over people's lived experience and so on. But because this is contentious territory to a point, and if I just kept thinking about what people would say about it, I couldn't have written it. So that was another reason why it had to be a really private experience in a way. All of the books I've written, and they've been very different, I think, and I, it makes me very happy to hear that you think I'm getting better at it, Mia, because obviously that's my ambition is to mm. get better mm. and get better. I want to explore all the complexities of women. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in women's stories and how we're not heroes and villains. We're not Madonnas and whores and all those mm. things. Like We're complicated, messed up people in our own rights. And so the criticism I got from I Give My Marriage a Year was always about Lou, the main character, being so unlikable. Like, she does all these things. She's so selfish, blah. At one point when I was writing this book, I got a bit paralysed because Mel, the main character in this, does some really stupid things. Like, she really Mm. does dangerous things. She does. Reckless things that are easy to criticise. But they're the best books when you start yelling at the character, like, don't do that. Exactly. I'm not interested in writing perfect people because they don't exist, right? So... I wanted those characters to be really flawed, but in doing that, you have to watch. Well, I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming them for what happens to them, but also we're all complicit in all the things that go on around us. Why did you choose coercive control as a theme, if marriage was the theme for the last book? I think it's fascinating how relationships can damage and colour you without necessarily straying into anything you could point at in a court of law even. You know, one of the things, because there's a generation gap here, obviously, it's told from two perspectives and one is a woman who's around 40 and one is a woman who's around 20. Mel's frustration is that things aren't changing and improving for women and girls fast enough. A lot has, but she's watching this young girl go through exactly what she went through as a young Mm. woman in love because... In love and relationships, we don't follow all the correct lines and all the right things Mm. you're meant to do. And Laurie often feels like a vulnerable victim in the world to a point. Like she talks about how exhausting it is to always be on high alert at what might happen to you next. I'm also fascinated about how you walk away from those relationships and what you take from them, you know? Do you think it's getting better? Because that was almost a theme as well, that... We think about gender equality and women's empowerment as this linear thing where every generation is getting more and more empowered and hopefully that means that abuse or coercive control doesn't exist in so many relationships. And you kind of explored that tension. I mean, do you think it's getting better or do you think that this sort of thing is inevitable when you're passionate and when you're infatuated with someone? I don't know. You know, sometimes I don't think it's getting better. That's, I mean, there are so many things that are better for women. But when I read, was it last year that Chanel Contos's yeah, um, that was big year. exploration, she released all these anecdotes from young Sydney schoolgirls about what had happened to them at parties and in house parties and at various places. It shocked me. It shocked me to my insides because that was not my experience of being a young woman that I always felt like mm. I was surrounded by predators. No, me neither. It was not. And I'm not suggesting for a second that those things didn't happen. No, 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 no. no. Like, of course they did, but I found it profoundly depressing yeah, <laughs> to yeah. think that this was the experience that all these young women were having and that all these young men were participating in. And then what I also wanted to explore, and it's at the end and obviously we're not giving away any spoilers, is what you do with it, right? Mm. What's a suitable punishment in inverted commas Mm. for somebody who is treating you terribly or has done terrible things but it's not necessarily something that you could sit in a courtroom and point out and say that was abuse no that's not what a lot of women 
a lot of men, a lot of whoever, is not necessarily what they want and it isn't necessarily going to give everyone closure. I mean, that's I don't think that's the end goal. Even Chanel Contos, what she was saying wasn't even that. It was sort of more about re-examining the dynamics of a relationship, which is harder to do, but something we Yeah, don't. I think what she was talking about and, and what your book explores whole is that when that stuff's happening to you, you see it as something that you've done. You personalise it very much because it obviously is personal, but you don't see it as something that exists. So when I was in that kind of relationship when I was in my early 20s, I didn't know the term emotional abuse mm. or coercive control. They weren't part of the language. So if you can't name something, it's hard to recognise it as something outside yourself. It's just like, oh, no, this is love or this is me or this is him or it's like, no, this is an actual thing. Do you think this is a self-esteem thing? Is this something about women? Because Laurie is, she's a younger woman and she's finding herself and I mean, there's so much to admire about her, but also every woman will see parts of herself. Oh, and she's a bit annoying, right? Because oh. you're sometimes like, come on. Yes, <laughs> just get it together. You're making weird, you can impulsive be decisions. And also you can romanticise love and you can romanticise jealousy. And, and sex. Yes, I wanted sex. to explore in this too because Mel is a woman who's getting divorced basically and she can see in Laurie that Laurie is... I don't know what the correct term for it is, but maybe she's in limerence, as in like she is obsessed with like the sex that she's had with this yeah. guy that's mm. so amazing has clouded everything, mm. right? It's interesting because we've been talking off mic lately a little bit about sex positivity and what you should tell your young people about sex and all those things. If you always set sex up as some kind of like negative experience that people are going to have, then the first time they have a mind-blowing orgasm with a person, they're going to know, A, they've been lied to <laughs> their whole lives, <laughs> and B, they're often going to go, this is love, you yes. know? Yes. So I also wanted to explore that. So it does deal with heavy issues, but I hope also the book is kind of sexy and intriguing in that way mm. as well. The question that a lot of outlouders are going to want to know the answer to is that you have been working at least four days a week. You have two kids. You have a Brent. You have a dog. <laughs> mm. How the hell did you write another mm. book in you know, that time? This book, I think another reason why I didn't want to talk about it much is I sometimes felt like I wrote it in five-minute blocks because I think my attention was very shattered over the past couple of years, as we've talked about a lot on the show. I think that was partly stress from the pandemic and all its knock-ons. You know, lots of things have happened. We were pushed into isolation. Also, my family, we've moved away, all those things. So sometimes when people want, like, process tips from me, I'm like... Like, but I want to know if it was different, to, if your process was different this time, because um, I feel like it was. It was different in that I had to lean into plot a lot more because this is a very plotty book. It mattered what happened when in a way that, like, I think possibly in I Give My Marriage mm. a Year was a bit more meandering, like obviously it had a structure. And I've been learning more about that and I, that's something I want to get really better at and I'm already thinking like with the next book I want to be better at that because it's really difficult it's oh. and so there Is was it more technical it's more technical there's more planning there's more you know mapping things out which is not my nature I am very much by instinct I'm a 
panther, as in I write by the seat of my pants and things you sit come down together. and, and go, it's like, what's going to happen? Yes. Now? So the process was different in that way. But my honest answer to how you find the time is, you know, you just do and you just fit it in around everything else that you do. And I write at night. I write early in the morning. I write on weekends. Obviously, having a Brent is very helpful in that way because he picks up a lot. I need a second location. That has been very important Mm. to me. So I hired a workspace down where I live for a while where I could go and like get away from looking at all the things around me that were. But what I usually do is I usually do that kind of working around everything when I'm working on a book. And then I take a block of time off, right, to sprint to the deadline. used to do that, yeah. And and this year it was January. And then I got COVID in January. And you got bad. And that really messed with me. I was like, oh, well, I'll just sit in bed and write. But actually, I couldn't. Like, I couldn't just sit in bed and write. And it messed with my mind for quite a long time. I got COVID on January the 6th, and my deadline was like the end of Jan. And I was like, well, that's three weeks. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a bit of a mess. And I think that at times that process has been a blur. But uh, yeah, you just squeeze it in. Oh, it's so good. Thank you so much. You're both just so very generous. Where can everyone who is listening, where can they buy it from? They can buy it anywhere you buy books. Of course, Mamma Mia subscribers get 10% off at Booktopia. So if you buy it at Booktopia, you get 10% off if you're a Mamma Mia subscriber. But also, of course, we love to support independent booksellers, lady startups. Lots of people ask me if I'm reading the audiobook. No, I'm not. I'm not allowed to do those things because it's fiction and I'm not an actor. Oh, that seems outrageous. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You should get Megan Markle to do I it. Should yeah. so yeah. 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 Beautiful Beautiful voice. But it. Yeah, so But it is, is on, out on. It is out on audiobook. It is out on ebooks and all the different places. So, thank you so much. I hope everybody loves it. This is the very nerve wracking bit. Oh. So what we're going to do is have a book club session with you, Hole, in the Out Louders group at a date in the future when, when everyone's, everyone's had some time to read it where you can pop in there and everyone can talk to you about yes. the book. Because other people's perspectives on what you've written are yeah. always the most interesting bit. They'll go, oh, you tried to do that? And you go, yes, I did. And then you, <laughs> and then you turn around and you make a note it's like, <laughs> I tried to do that. <laughs> You've let it go. You've got to let it go now. Now it belongs to other people. Bye-bye, little Off book. It goes. The couple upstairs, you won't be able to miss it in bookstores. It is so bright. It has the best cover ever. Go and buy it. It's brilliant. You'll love it. 